in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is the word of God. As we finish our look at this chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we have been building up to this point. What is the practical implication of the church's existence in the world? Paul has been teaching us, uh, the Word of God has been teaching us, as Paul is inspired to write this by the Holy Spirit, how we ought to walk, how we ought to fulfill the will of God, how we ought to uh, refrain and abstain from lustful passion and sexual immorality, how to set aside the things that we are commanded is setting aside the God and rejecting God and not man. So we have had a warning and we have seen how we ought to grow in love with one another in verses 9 and 10. Last week we saw what the church's ambition is supposed to be. And this week we will take a look at this passage before us in verses 13 to 18. As we have just read, pray with me. Our Father and our God, yet again we come before you to praise you for allowing sinful people like us to be saved because of your grace, because of your love, and to come together from all kinds of walks of life, all kinds of backgrounds, and all kinds of difficulties. You have brought us to this place so that we may worship you. So for that, we thank you, Lord. And we ask now that you will give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to behold the truth of your word that is sharper than a double-edged sword, which is living and active, which is sufficient for us to live a life that glorifies your name and honors your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, help us see the truth, convict us by the truth, and conform us into the image of your Son by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if I were to tell you today that, you know what? Life is all about minding your own business, staying out the way, and just working. And you will, you will live a good life. Just stay out the way, mind your own business, and work. There's no significant difference between your life and the life of a, an unbeliever. You're like, yeah, sure, I, I get it. So there is an ambition, as we saw last week. So what makes us different? And we took a look at that last week. So Paul, starting in verse 13, is continuing this practical life of the church, which is supposed to be lived with a level of ambition. That is a quiet life, attending to your own business, working, it kind of becomes monotonous. It becomes repetitive, right? Wake up, rinse, again, do it again. Wake up, 
be quiet, attend to your business, work, and you wake up, you do the same thing. And it just becomes monotonous. Is there, the question is, is there more to the Christian life than this? Than just to be quiet, attending church services, Bible studies, you have your quiet time, and then you go to school, you go to work, you do whatever, and then you do it over again. Is there more to the Christian life? And these are questions that most people have had and you have had, and you find it boring to some degree to be a Christian even because there's no fun in it. And then you start noticing people around you dying. And those people are Christians, just like you are. And you notice there are, there's this thing called death, which most of us will come to. And then it causes you, is this my life? Is it it? That's it? What happens? So that should, and it inevitably will, cause you to seek to find out more about the eternal perspective. So in our passage here, we see that it's a tension in verse 13 between a, verse 13 and verse 18. The tension is caused by being uninformed. We do not want you to be uninformed so that you will not grieve in verse 13. And in verse 18, comfort one another with these words. So there's a tension between the anxiety of being uninformed, the grief of being uninformed, and the comfort of being informed here. So this is kind of like a sandwich, so to speak, that Paul is writing about to the believers in Thessalonica. What is this tension? It's caused by being an agnostic. I did not travel far to bring about that word because this is the word that he uses for um, uninformed. Agnoin, which the word agnostic comes from, means there's no certain knowledge. We cannot know what happens after we die. Have you ever been there? How do we know what happens to the people that die? What happens to me when I die? I don't know. Maybe this happens. Maybe that happens. So since we don't have a certain knowledge, if we are uninformed, if we are agnostic about this, then we can lead a life that is full of grief. And this is evident in the Corinthian church, as Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35 says, But some will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body would they come? I don't know how the resurrection works. I don't know. It would be the question. We just know that it would happen. I don't know. And look at what Paul says again in verse 32 in the same chapter. Um, if, if, if the dead are not raised, let us drink 
eat, for tomorrow we die. Life becomes the same thing. If there's no resurrection, if nothing, if we can't know anything, this might lead you to think this way. Just live fast, die young, because we don't know what tomorrow brings. Or you ask the question, well, how is that going to happen? I'm like, I don't really know. It doesn't say, if, is it going to be my 17-year-old body or my 30-year-old body? Is it my 45-year-old body that's going to be resurrected? There's no clear thing. So it, is a, it might lead you to be an agnostic about it. So you can see how this can be a point of grief, sorrow, despair, burden, anxiety. What happens when people die? What happens to the people when the people that we love, when they pass on? This is why Paul writes to the Thessalonians in his second letter. Now we ask you, he says, brothers, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, notice what he says, that you not be quickly shaken in your mind or be alarmed, whether by spirit or word or letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Notice the mental state in verse 2. Do not be quickly shaken in your mind or be alarmed. So when people die, this is usually what happens. You ask questions. What will happen to them? What happens to us when we die? Where can we turn to find the answer? Well, in this passage, Paul gives us Paul gives you three reasons why you should respond differently and with comfort to these questions. Three reasons. This will be our outline for today. Why you should respond differently and with comfort to the question of the R word, which the sermon is titled. That R word is not rapture. If you are guessing that, because this is the R word is resurrection. Here's the three reasons. First one is because of Jesus. It's as if Paul is saying, look to the past. Second one is because of scripture, because of the word. And because thirdly, we have the promise looking to the future. Look at Paul's first argument, first reason. As he says in verse 14, 4, which gives us the explanation of that reason, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Paul's first explanation has to do with the core of our faith. The core of our faith when Paul starts 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, I delivered as first important, 
as first importance, I deliver to you that the church will be raptured. That's not what he delivered. That Jesus had to die, be raised from the dead. His death and his resurrection is at the center of our faith. So what does Paul say in terms of what happens to people die? Where do we look? We look to the past. We look behind us and we say, what happened to Jesus? For he is the first fruit of our resurrection. So he, takes, he tells us to take into account the condition of your faith. If we believe. You notice that? That's a conditional clause, right? If we believe Jesus died and rose again. He calls into question what your view is about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did he really die? Do you really believe that? Did he really, was he really resurrected from the dead? Is that what you believe? When you look back in real history, what do you actively and really in a real way, personally, to your own core, believe to be true about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? If you believe that, if what he says in Romans chapter 10 verse 9 is you, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you are saved. You will be saved. If your heart has been pierced by the testimony of Peter, as he testifies in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 to 24, when he says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, the man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and the signs which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know historically accurate. This Jesus, this man delivered over to be delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. Now this is Peter, 50 days after the resurrection, talking about this. I mean, this is, this is just newly, they know the death and resurrection just happened. They just killed Jesus 50, 55 days before, 53 days before that. They have seen this historically. So he's saying this testimony to them, this Jesus, you nailed to the cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. If your heart has been pierced by this testimony as those who have heard it when he testified this, if you go and read, and when many heard this testimony, their hearts were pierced, and they said to Peter, what, what, what must we do to be saved? And he tells them, repent to be baptized. If this testimony has truly pierced and gripped your heart, is what Paul is saying in 
verse 14. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, most people would argue, by the way, that this is not a real historical thing. This is just a figurative thing, and we can't really trace this back. This is a real historical event. Paul argues for this in, in probably the most comprehensive account and argument for the resurrection, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I encourage you to go and, and, and read it and interact with that text. In the first eight verses, he talks about how he not only been, this is not something that he only witnessed. There were over 500 people that have witnessed the resurrected Jesus. 500 witnesses. Listen to this. Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaim to you as good news, which you also received, in which also you stand, by which you also are saved. This is the gospel. If you hold fast the word which I proclaim to you as good news, unless you believe for, believe for nothing. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he appeared to James, his brother, then to all the apostles. At last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. This is a real historical event that happened People, real people like you are, have seen the resurrection happen. The resurrected Christ has appeared to them. There's true historical witness to that. Is that your faith in terms of his death and resurrection? This is why Paul is saying. If you believe this, if Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. If you can look back and pinpoint that historical, real witness of the resurrection, you can trust that God can do the same for those who died in Christ Jesus. This is the argument Paul is making in verse 14. So I do not want you to be unaware. I want you to be, I, I want you to be informed you can be comfortable. You can respond to the matter of death because you can look back at Jesus' death and resurrection and you say, oh, if God did it in Jesus, he can do it with me or with those who died in Christ Jesus. The emphasis here is even so God will. You notice that? This is what God does. One of the commentaries I was looking at, it makes the argument, which one is harder? To bring something out of nothing or to, re, to, to bring back what has died? Really? It's harder to bring something out of nothing 
than to bring back what has died. Because you at least have the material by which to, to bring them back to life. So if God can give new life, this is the argument that he was making. This is Christus, um, Christism in his homily that, that says this. It is incredibly harder to bring something from not being to being than to resurrect what was once there and has died. So this is what God does. And we can look back to the past and because of Jesus being resurrected, we can trust that God will also bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Christ. So we can respond differently. We don't need to panic. We don't need to fear death. We don't need to be anxious about this idea of death. Our, our sorrow, I'm not saying that you, it's not sad when somebody dies. It is absolutely sad. You should have, or you, you will have an emotional reaction to death. But you are not left to despair. You're not anxious as to what is going to happen. You respond differently because you can look back at what God has done and trust that He will also do the same for everyone who dies physically. So He can respond differently with comfort for that reason. Second reason that He brings is it's because of the Word. In the present. Notice what he says in verse 15. 4. And I, I want you to, to take a look at verse 14, verse 15, and verse 16. Notice how he starts each verse. 4. Explaining, giving us that reason. For our confidence, for our comfort. Right? So this is the second reason. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. The second reason that you are not misinformed is because this discourse, this explanation, what he is telling us, what he is teaching us, this apostolic discourse, what the apostles are telling us about this matter, is the means of divine revelation. God has revealed himself to you now by his word. You have this. Right now, you can read it. That's what we're doing. We're reading this. We can be comfortable in reading. This is God's word. This is God has revealed himself to us in this way about this matter of the resurrection and what happens to those who fall asleep in Jesus Christ. And we're discussing this now in the present. The same way that it was the present when this letter was being read to the church of Thessalonica and they were reading this. He says to them, this we say to you by the word of the Lord. It is God's word, not only in a verbal sense, not only in a general way, but in a comprehensive presentation of Scripture. You have this authoritative divine revelation that Paul is giving from the Lord, not from himself, 
in scripture by which you can be comforted, by which you can be informed, by which you will not be left uninformed. A couple of months ago, a friend of mine texted me and said, hey, have you seen this, this um, trend on TikTok where there's, there's a video going around where there's a bunch of sheep and they're like walking around in circles all over the world and somebody had said, Something about that is the end of the world. This is a sign of the end of the world, blah, blah, blah. And he was, he called me and he texted me and he was panicking. I hadn't heard of it until he sent me the videos and I saw the videos. I was just like, okay, I don't know. I can find it in the Bible where it says before Jesus comes back, there will be a bunch of sheep walking around in circles all over the world. I couldn't find it. But do you see how that can like all of a sudden, there's this whole thing happening. And this is pretty relevant because a couple of weeks ago, people were going all over the place with the three balloons that the U.S. Air Force shot down. Oh, we got UFOs coming. This is the end of the world. Oh, no. I remember back in 2012, the Mayans had said the end of the world is going to be December 21st, 2012. And here we are, 2023. There was one, one, there's like 10 of them I just looked up this weekend. For the sake of time, I'll, I'll, I'll spare you the details. But 10 botched end-of-world prophecies that have not happened. And I'm, I'm saying 10 major ones. There's numerous other minor ones that are out there. So to bring you back to the conversation I had with my friend, I said, what does the Bible tell you? Read your Bible. I can't, I can't find it in the Bible. In terms of is that going to really bring about the end? But when you have this divine revelation that is authoritative from the Lord in Scripture, you can be comfortable in knowing what happens to those who die in Christ. What happens to you after you die? See, the biggest question the Thessalonians were having, as we see here, is what happens to those who die? Are they going to miss the resurrection? Are they going to miss the day of the Lord because they died before he came back? Because they cared so much for them. This actually flows out of the love that we learned about a few weeks ago in verses 9 and 10. Because they loved one another so much that they didn't want their fellow brothers and sisters to miss out on the resurrection. So they're worried. What's going to happen to them? Are we going to see him in eternity? Are we going to be together in eternity, enjoying ourselves with the Lord together because they perished and we're still alive. And Paul is writing to address this very reason. And he's saying, look at the scriptures today because you have this authoritative command, this authoritative divine revelation, you can be comforted and answer the question about what happens to the people that die in Christ from now. You can do that now in the present. 
You have this trustworthy testimony as a reference. As Peter puts it, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like flowers of grass, and the grass withers, and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. You notice this. You can have this word of the Lord that endures forever to give you comfort, not only today, not only yesterday, but whenever it's today, tomorrow will be today, tomorrow, right? See what I did there? When you wake up tomorrow, you won't say tomorrow's tomorrow, you will say tomorrow's today. So in that moment, in whatever present moment you are in, you can trust the word of the Lord that endures forever. And this comfort, this information, this revelation Paul is giving to the Thessalonians is given by means of the word of the Lord. Not just experientially, but authoritatively in the written word. This is a trustworthy divine revelation that tells you that there is a resurrection for those who are dead in Christ. Not only that, there is a, an order. It happens in an orderly manner as, as to when it happens and how it happens. Right? Look at verse 15. The second part of verse 15. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. There's an order on how it happens. How do we know this? Because the word of the Lord tells us. At the coming of the Lord, those who are still alive will not attain resurrection before those who have already died. So because you have this trustworthy testimony of the Lord, Listen to what Peter says about this testimony, by the way, just as an insertion. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 19. And you can go there and you can look at it or you can just listen to it. For we did not make known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, following cleverly devised myths, but being eyewitnesses of his majesty. You hear that, right? It's not some cleverly devised myth. But we were actual eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Do you remember when that happened? That's the account of the, at the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus takes Peter, John, and James with him to the mountain, 
Then he goes a little bit away from them, and he goes up on a mountain, and they see the heaven open, and they hear audibly the word of the Father, and they see Moses on one side and Elijah on the other side, and they hear this utterance, which Peter tells us, this utterance made from heaven, which says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. They saw it, and remember what they said? They said, forget everybody else. Let's just camp here. Let's just live here. This is, this is it. We have, we have achieved the pinnacle of life. They have actually seen and heard this happen. And he's saying, this is not cleverly divine myth. We saw this. We were eyewitnesses to this. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. What else can make you believe? Right? This is an argument most of us here today. If God is so real, why doesn't he just show himself to us? Why doesn't he, why doesn't he just talk to me? If he just talked to me, and if I heard him talk from heaven, I would believe. But God has spoken. You should refer to anyone that says that, or if that's you, go read Hebrews chapter 1. But listen, listen to Peter's argument, however, in verse 19. And we have as more sure the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Even though we have this experience, there is a prophetic word. This is the scripture. This is God's revelation in his word that is even surer, that is even more sure, more sure that you will do well to pay attention to. In other words, what he's saying is, yes, you, we can tell you from experience that we, this, is not divine, this is not just um, cleverly devised myth. This is divine revelation. But you will do well. To pay attention to the scripture. Even more sure than experiences is God's written word in the scripture, which Paul says in verse 15, that we are telling you this by the word of the Lord, that this resurrection will happen in the way that God has ordered it. And you have that now. You only have Peter's experiences in Peter's time. You only have my experiences my, in my time. You only have your experiences in that moment. My experiences do not endure forever. Your experiences do not endure forever. It's the word of the Lord that endures forever. And you have that now. And you will do well to pay attention to that. Or else you will be uninformed and therefore you will have grief and you will have anxiety when you think about death. And what happens to those who die in Christ? And what happens to me if I die? What happens after this life? But if you are informed by the word of God, 
you will respond differently. And you will respond with comfort in your soul because God's divine revelation endures forever. But how does this resurrection happen? How exactly? Because we are curious beings, right? After all, that's why we become scientists and programmers and fill in the blank. And we are just curious. So we want to know. And it's as if Paul knows, and he gives them the third reason. Paul is anticipating the, the, the way that they, they are thinking, they would respond as he's saying, hey, I, I don't want you to be uninformed, and I want you to grieve as the rest who have no hope. But what is our hope? What do we hold on to? How is this happening? So Paul gives this third reason. In verse 16, which summarizes the promise that Jesus gave. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with a trumpet of God. This third explanation has directly to do with what the Lord himself promised. That the Lord himself promised and therefore you can be confident and comforted knowing whether you or your fellow believer dies. That you will not miss res the resurrection. Because God promised. Because the Lord himself promised. You notice what we read in our scripture reading in John chapter 14. Where the Lord says, if I go and prepare a place for you, you notice what he says? I will come again and receive you to myself. What a promise. That where I am, there you may be also. And it's not the only place that he says this. He says this again in John chapter 14, verse 18. The same chapter, different verse. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Again, in verse 28, you heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. So you can be confident and comfortable knowing that this is what the Lord promised. How is he going to come to us? Listen to what Luke writes in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. This is, just to kind of give you a context, this is when all the disciples have come to the mountain and then he is ascended. He is taken up into the cloud. And the angels show up and they speak to the disciples. And they tell them, they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking towards heaven? 
because they're looking at this time. They're looking at Jesus being taken up to heaven. He's ascending to the right hand of the Father, and they just look, and they're stuck right there. And the angels come, and they say to him, they say to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking towards heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Look at verse 16 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. This promise that we have in scripture from the Lord and from the angels is going to be fulfilled. You can look forward with hope. You can look to the past, to the death and resurrection of Jesus. You can look today in the present, in the word, and know that the dead will be raised again. And you can look forward to the promise that Jesus himself made to his disciples that he will come and bring us home. Listen to what John sees in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sits on is called faithful and true. In righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems having a name written on him which no one knows except himself, and being clothed with a garment dipped in blood. His name is also called the Word of God. And the armies, armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it, he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God, the Almighty. And he has on his garment and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the vision that John sees of Jesus coming back. This is what we look forward to. This is the promise that is given to us. Therefore, you can look forward with comfort. You can look forward with hope. There are many among us who would think, when I die, I don't know what will happen to me. Not what the Word of God teaches us. If that's you, you can look at the fact that Jesus died and rose again. You can look at the trustworthy testimony of the Word of God today. And you can look forward with hope for the coming of this King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
who will come with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. Listen, look at what it would happen in verse 17. Then, who, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. I'm sorry, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Remember I said there's an order? Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. What hope do you have in the promise that this will happen? You can't say, I don't know it. You can't say, I never knew it. I am ne I'm in not informed because the word of God comprehensively teaches this. And if you need an example as a first fruit, you can look back at what God did in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And respond differently to death. Notice this order in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23. Each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are in Christ at his coming. You see the coherence of this. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. You can look forward to this. In a moment, in the twinkle of, of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, we will be changed. Do you see this? Does this lead you to despair? That's why he says, comfort one another with these words. Friends, when you think about death, whether it be your own death or others that are in Christ, don't despair. Don't be afraid. Because you have hope in the resurrection of which Jesus was the first fruit. You have God's word today that endures forever, supplying you with the endurance. And you have the everlasting hope in the coming of the Lord to bring you home. Be comforted in that. Not only keep your comfort, but comfort one another with these words. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are so thankful that you have given us this time to reveal yourself to us in your word. 
Lord, we are so thankful that you will not leave us as orphans, but you will come to us and you will bring us to yourself. Lord, you didn't just save us so that we can live a life that is only earthly and temporal, but you have saved us and called us into a life that is eternal with you. Yet one thing we know, that this temporal life will end. And in thinking that, we get nervous, we get anxious. Grief overtakes us. We get sad thinking about those who leave, who we leave behind and those who would leave us behind. But Lord, we will not be shaken. We will not be overtaken by the fear and anxiety of death. For you have given us your son, Jesus Christ, as the first fruit of the resurrection. Death cannot hold him back. He has risen indeed and given us his life through your spirit that is eternal. And therefore, at his coming, we will also be with him. We will be changed. This corruptible body will take form of the incorruptible and eternal. And you have given us your word so that we may persevere and endure as we live as pilgrims in this world. Father, therefore, we look forward to the day of his coming. Lord, give us grace so we may look and hope and joy and endurance and not in despair. We pray these things in his name. Amen.